Thank you, and once again, good day to students and teachers of the Word of God. We're in Lesson 64 in the Theological Seminar of the Air, dealing with the subject of anthropology and systematic theology, that is, the facts that support the biblical account of creation, and in particular, the creation of man. Now, we talked about this in our previous broadcast. In our previous broadcast, in regards to the creation account, as given exactly in the King James Bible, we pointed out, first of all, that no man is scientific who said it's unscientific, because science is supposed to be a correlated body of knowledge that can be observable and demonstrable by their own definition. Science is a correlated body of absolute knowledge, demonstrable in fact and observable. Therefore, there is no science of origins anywhere outside of Genesis 1, and a man who says Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is not scientific could not be classified as a scientist at all, because in the first place he can't demonstrate that it didn't happen that way, in the second place he was not there to observe if it didn't happen that way, and in the third place all transformations of matter that result in the reduction of energy are a result of degeneration, of breaking down from the complex to the simple, and not vice versa. As we pointed out in our previous broadcast, the three laws of thermodynamics prove conclusively that any modern scientist who believes in evolution has a mental problem and is intellectually dishonest. The uh, fantasy of Aldous Huxley in saying that PhDs in sociology will never be corrupted because their heart is pure, because they're scientists, is just about as wild as you can get. Uh, I don't recall what Goebbels under Adolf Hitler ever went any further out of left field than that. Now, the biblical account of all the sacred books proclaimed there is but one God who by a spoken word created all things. This one God is given the Bible as a creator, and Jesus Christ recognized him as a creator, and Jesus Christ, of course, was not an evolutionist, he was a creationist. His references to the Noahic flood show that he was also a catastrophic geologist and not a uniformitarian geologist. As we pointed out, the ridiculous methods of uranium breakdown and isotope breakdown in radioactive substances and the Libby Carbon-14 experiment, similar nonsense, only undoes the work done by the scientists because none of them can find any evidence the earth has been here more than four million years and the most radical four hundred million. And yet the standard breakdown on the chart given every school in this country and every college in the high school textbooks indicates a date of two billion five hundred million years. We have pointed out this will not match the breakdown of the earth's magnetic field, the disintegration of comets or radioactivity or volcanic eruption or sedimentary deposits. The oldest possible days you can get in view of the present observable, demonstrable fact of the Earth's decay of magnetic field is 10,000 years. That can be demonstrated with observable fact. When we study the half-lives of the stars and the planets and the comets and the meteors and the magnetic field, we are dealing with facts that are observable and demonstrable now, all of which indicate if a man sets a date back further than 10,000 years for this Earth, he has uh, had a temporary attack of lunacy, and his pilot light has been blown out. Now consider the wonderful design and division of the land and water, air and atmosphere. If the level of the ocean were to rise a few feet, large portions of the land would be submerged. The Sahara Desert would become a lake. Considering heat and evaporation of water, the balance is maintained. The air is perfectly balanced with oxygen and nitrogen, a ratio of 21 to 79. No physical or chemical law maintained this balance, kept by the creative power of God. The lavishness of creation, the hundreds of varieties of birds, flowers, animals, herbs, fruits, fish, tree, and ferns, 
so that evolution could not possibly provide it, and if it did, what would be the purpose in it? A study of history and primitive man shows the savagery and natural brutality of man, as mentioned in Genesis, as a result of degeneration. An isolated tribe newly discovered will be an instance of degeneration. Animals are not brutal like men. The male of the beast does not maltreat his female. The animal does not continually eat food that harm him. This is a mark of degenerate mankind. Brutality is the result of the fall, and no ape or dog or cat has ever been found who is as depraved as man. When God tells the golden flower to fly, he flies. When God tells that curly in Alaska to fly to Honolulu and pick out the nest his mom and daddy made for him the year before, it takes off. Man is the only, only animal, the cool Darwin, that, that disobeys God. The Bible speaks of six creative days. Some argue each day was a millennium, and according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, which of course is nonsense, that's rejection of sound doctrine by a fundamentalist, because if each day was a thousand years, there would have been plants and herbs and flora and fauna growing on this earth without sunlight for a thousand years, which is nonsense. Geologists tell us the order of creation follows earth patterns. First day, night, for the division of light and darkness. Second day, the firmament, division of atmosphere and water. Third day, dry land, division of land and water. Fourth day, sun, moon, and stars, division of day and night rulers. Fifth day, light, fish, fowl, whale. Sixth day, creatures. And God saw it was good. And according to Genesis' account, man is created in the image and after the likeness of God. This means any man with a college education doesn't believe the King James Bible is set in direct contradiction to the fact and the truth of reality by his brainwashed upbringing in the American college and university system. If there's one thing Darwin didn't believe, he didn't believe that man was created up and fell. He believed that man was in a slime pit and grew up. If there's one outstanding falsehood or one perennial lie that is taught year in and year out by 90% of the college professors in America, it is that man began wrong and is gradually working up to get better, where the Bible said he began at the top and dropped to the bottom. Now, all this monkey demand business, this puddle of paradise, the modernist program's progress, is built on the hypothetical conjecture and the, and the uh, conjecture and the hypothetical theorizing that if you draw a little cartoon chart, and then each year find something you think you can fit in someplace that looks like you want it to fit, that this proves something. And, of course, this uh, monkey business has been going on in the colleges for years. All this legendary, obscene, fairy tale business about vestigial structures, biochemistry, blood precipitation tests, comparative anatomy, embryology, taxonomy, and geographic distribution, genetics and control breeding, and fossil evidence uh, backing up evolution, is just the highly fabricated complex speculation of pagan imagination. The supposed mechanics of evolution, the variation and mutation is transmitted in genetics through germplasm, the natural selection, survival of fittest, heredity and isolation, of course, is a bigger fairy tale than you could find in Disneyland if you stayed there for three weeks. In the Pleistocene period, you're supposed to have this Piltdown Man, the Pre-Killian, the Peking Man, the Andrathal Man, the Cro-Magnon Man, the Modern Man, the Neolithic Bronze and Iron Ages, with a civilization supposedly beginning with the Neolithic and the Sousa of Persia about 20,000 B.C. These incredible asses are trying to tell us that a ground woman in Minnesota and a camel found 100 feet above the Red River in Oklahoma prove that man was in America in 20,000 B.C. 
these 20,000 B.C. And so, so the incredible fairy tale goes, passed down from one campfire to another, and this legend and myth goes on and on and on in the uh, colleges of America. Uh, all kinds of things we have here. Julian Huxley. Julian Huxley had this leap from ape to man, only occurring once and not able to happen again. <laughs> A likely story. You'll find that in the modern synthesis. Harper wrote 1942. In Early Man by F. Clark Howell of University of Chicago. There's a good educated Darwinian monkey. He's a professor of anthropology. He says, uh, Plopithecus and Proconsul had 22 million years to come up with a gap of 2 million years, then 15,000 years for uh, Dropithecus and Oreopithecus with 14,000 year gap, then a 14 million year gap for Ramapithecus with a gap of 10 million years, a 3 million gap for Australopithecus, a 1,600,000 for Anthropus and advanced uh, Australopithecus, 800,000 years for Homo erectus with a gap of 100,000 years before early Homo sapiens, with a gap of 50,000 years before the Solo man, the Rhodesian man, the Androthal man, the Cro-Magnon man, the modern man, which is known as Dreamland, Fairyland, Disneyland tale with Pogo Peanuts and Charlie Brown. The evidence that uh, Dr. F. Clark Howell of University of Chicago produces for this incredible nonsense amounts to some pretty color cartoons and pictures drawn by an artist. You notice how crowded it gets at the end? I suppose you notice that. With Ramapithecus lasting two million years longer than all Rhodesians, Neanderthal, and Cro-Magnon combined. This is the convenient doggerel put together by deluded sinners who reject the King James translation and the Word of God and reject the uh, evidence of their own profession and mistakenly suppose that the mad dreams of their deluded imaginations and hallucinations qualify them to talk about objective scientific discovery. The Darwinian theory of descent doesn't have one single fact to confirm it According to Dr. N.S. Shaver of Harvard University, Dr. Etheridge of the British Museum, Professor L.S. Peake of King's College, London, Professor Fleischmann of Erlangen, and the following people didn't believe it, Professor Virchow of Berlin, Asa Gray and Alfred Wallace, and Agassiz in America. These charts and these outlines of historical geology show a man with a missing link to an ape, to a monkey, to an extinct very ardent reptile who has a missing link between himself and Cotylosaur from a Stegocephalian, also extinct. Very convenient, Walt Disney. We appreciate the funny stories on Sunday morning in the color cartoon strip. Of course, it has nothing to do with anything objective or scientific, because the only scientific account of the creation of man is in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 1. Now, we know the arguments put forth by those who are in Cloudland on Cloud 9 with their heroine, but we're primarily concerned here with scientific fact and not nonsense. A likeness proves nothing. A mouse nest in a telescope may look like a quadruped on the moon, but that doesn't mean anything. A fellow says, why the vertebrae and intervertebrae? Why, why not? Why have monotony? Why there's so many vertebrae? Because you can glorify God more with a vertebrae than you can a non-vertebrae. Our same artist can paint a picture of the dome of Yosemite in a sand pile. They may look alike, but they're not. Holiness is purity. Sin is dirt. Holiness is not 
sin, and purity is not dirt, they're still different even if you define them as the same. Growth is not evolution, though it's mistakenly called that. What Huxley called a tendency to assume a definite living form is fantasy. Imagine anybody talking about the sun rising for 6,000 years as being a tendency toward sun rising. No scientist has defined life or traced its source outside of Genesis 1 to 3. How do you tell what is essential to life and what isn't? A mammy approved you belong to the same race as your wife. I guess that proves you'll do a little more work than she, she does. It's impossible to prove anything you have when a vestigial organ is useless. All this talk about vestigial organs being the leftover of a time when you were climbing around trees and eating bananas. Why, it's nonsense. Pure, unadulterated horseradish, brother. Vestigial organs. Verily. The trouble with this matter is domestication and breeding improved point shows that evolution is a farce. When we stop cats, uh, we quit breeding cats and taking care of them, they become vagabonds. When we quit breeding dogs and take care of them, they become flea bags. When we quit working on potatoes, they become small and the horses aren't worth catching and breaking. That is, when the string breaks, the kite falls. There's a dead lift at each beginning in the evolutionary stages put out in your little color cartoon books, your pitiful little college textbooks, which are about as scientific as uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland, and going from the Cambrian to the Ordovican, Silurian, Devonian, Mississippian, Pennsylvania, Permian, and the Mesozoic area with the Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, in the Cenozoic area of the Quaternary and Tertiary period, the Ligocene, Miocene, Pliocene, might be a good way to make a living fooling chumps that don't know Latin or Greek, but who do you think you're trying to kid, your grandmother? Every age began with a dead lift at each beginning because only one-cell animals began it. But no such thing as a two-cell animal. Evolution is a very poor moral theory, too. It makes the strongest and best armed survive, so you challenge them in combat so they degenerate and expire. How does nakedness improve your chances of surviving? Do you ever think about that? When God made Adam, he was naked. You take off your clothes, you're naked right now. Animals aren't. Every animal you ever met wore his own clothes and grew it. Why would you think they were kin? Imagine some incredible idiot talking about man being a naked ape. There's no such thing as a naked ape. Apes grow their own clothing. Isn't that weird? How people think and how they talk when they're trying to justify their sins and their animal morals and their animal standards? How did that ape losing his natural grown clothing, how did it improve his survival chances? Would you tell me that? All this stuff. Have you ever noticed how double-minded these scientists are? For years they said the Earth was the center of the universe, then they said the Sun was the center, then they said the galaxy was the center, then they said the galaxy was off-center. Make up your mind, stupid. Then they said everything was material, then they said all, everything was non-material, then they said the smallest unit could divide, then they said that you couldn't divide the smallest unit. And you call that science? demonstrable, provable knowledge, a correlated body of absolute fact, 
Are you kidding? Then they found something smaller than the smallest unit. Isn't that something? And imagine somebody taking that stuff seriously, brother. Just as seriously as a plastered owl. Dr. Alfred Warren, professor of physics at UCLA, says the Bible gives an authoritative and unified account about the origin of creation. Professor Edding said ANOVA is the last stage of evolution, not the first. Dr. Van Auer Bush, board chairman of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, the father of the modern analog computer, said science never proves anything in an absolute sense. So when we say that, well, of course, uh, we have a good many scientists on our side. The fish do not survive. They're supposedly proofs of 18-foot sloths, 20-foot bears, 85-foot reptiles, 25-foot wingspan birds, and turtles 12 feet in diameter. Where are they now? Easy. They didn't survive. Did you notice that? Oh, we've got some winners, boy. We've got some winners. Now, an image means the shadow outline of a figure. Man was made in the image of God, and the image of God is said to be Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, hence Christ is called the last Adam. Likeness denotes the resemblance of that shadow to the figure. In 1 Corinthians 11, 7, we read, The man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Notice the reference in 1 Corinthians 11, 7 is not to an unsaved man. No unsaved man is made in the image of God, and no unsaved man is the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 11, 7 was talking about a Christian marriage relationship between two people who have been born again. You'll be careful to notice that no man on this earth was ever made in the image of God until the new birth. You were told this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Therefore, the common heresy taught by apostate fundamentalists that man is made in the image of God is heresy. No man is made in the image of God. He's made in the image and likeness of Adam. Genesis 5, verse 1 to 4. And he's not made in the image of Christ until he's born again. Colossians chapter 3. That is sound doctrine. And it is reinforced and uh, augmented by the fact that the expression in the book of the generations only occurs two times in your Bible, once in the generation of fallen men who are in the likeness and image of Adam, Genesis 5, and once in Matthew 1, where you're getting ready to read about the born-again people who regenerated under Jesus Christ. There are only two men in that Bible. One is a fallen man, and one is uh, the image of God. The fallen man was made an image of God and lost it. The man who is God's image is Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And there isn't a man I'm talking to who has ever made an image of God until you were regenerated by the Spirit and placed in Jesus Christ. That sound doctrine. And the last days, of course, the apostate fundamentalists will reject that sound doctrine. The image of God denotes not only a physical likeness to Jesus Christ and his original creation, but also the spiritual parts. From Scripture, we learn that it means knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. It refers to moral likeness and physical likeness, although the modern apostate fundamentalist will rule out physical likeness because he's rejected the sound doctrine of Acts 5, or Genesis 5, Matthew 1, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. No man is born again until we have him in the condition of Colossians 3.10, until he is put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. 
The conclusion is that Adam and Eve were created with intelligence, for Adam named the animals. They did not evolve from the animals. They did not come from the animals. And the Lord Jesus Christ it was who said, in the day that God created man, talking about Adam and Eve, he made them male and female. The Lord Jesus Christ never began with amoral, bisexual, asexual, one-cell, hobbly-gobbly, living blabble-blabble. He said in Matthew 19, verse 4, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? The first man and the first woman was a male man and a female woman. That's what took place at the beginning. And Jesus Christ said God made them. Now, if your professor said he didn't, that shows your professor's lacking brains. You might pray and ask God to give him some wisdom so he won't talk and act like a fool the rest of his life, which is quite common among educated people. The bigger the belfry, the more room for the bats. All right, then man is a direct creation by God Almighty, according to Jesus Christ. It is true you have many college professors who think they're smarter than Jesus Christ. But, of course, you don't date your birthday from their births. You date your birthday from the birthday of Jesus Christ. And these people who think they're smarter than Jesus Christ never can produce as many followers that live good lives as Jesus Christ. We compare the moral lives of some of these Darwinian monkeys who wallow in filth. We never have to worry about who's smarter, them or Christ. We know who's the smartest. And we don't have to flip a coin. The smart man was the one who believed in creationism and that God made them, and that God made them at the beginning male and female. And I don't mean neuter, shims, or combinations of hymns and she's. I don't mean sexless, amoral, asexual uh, people with no standards, this monkey brand of mongrel, gray, integrated, magpie's nest, smorgasbord peons. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about original creation made after the image of God, that God made himself directly, and that man fell and disobeyed God, and he's been in trouble ever since. Now, unconverted scholarship, when I say that, I mean the 98% of what you were taught in any college or university in America, and I'll cover the fundamental and uh, Christian colleges in just a minute. Unconverted scholarship has no rational explanation for breeding experiments or the mania to integrate. Having showed documentary films which put one race down the try on the level of Aborigines and Bushmen, they are telling you that it's perfectly all right to step down to that level in order to evolve. That is irrational. I'm not talking about politics or white supremacy or the Ku Klux Klan. I'm talking about breeding experiments in a kennel. You don't get thoroughbred German shepherds by taking the fence down. You get it by putting it up. A man who doesn't believe that is not a rational man. Unconverted scholarship has no rational explanation for ephemeral marks in, in streams, erratic boulders that move northward instead of southward, polystrate fossils where the fossils have been preserved in three or four different strata that were supposed to be 20,000 years apart. Unconverted scholarship has no explanation for missing links. They're still missing. No explanation for ociferous fissures, the bones of animals and men piled together indiscriminately in high places. They have no rational explanation for the sudden freezing of mastodons that had the tropic vegetation in their stomach when they were frozen. They have no rational explanation for a piece of Noah's Ark brought back from a boat that is 16,000 feet high in the air. 
They have no rational explanation for fish fossils and mountains, no rational explanation for mountain ranges or genesis. They have no rational explanation for the polar caps and no rational explanation for the survival of the unfit or the extinction of the fit. They refuse to follow their own laws of thermodynamics, which have been proved experimentally. They dismiss the mathematical formulas which they find the genetic codes. They dismiss the mathematical phenomena demonstrated in Bible prophecy. And all evolutionists avoid physics, especially datum on what we call half-lives, which prove the Earth could not have been here more than 10,000 years at a maximum. So much for unconverted scholarship at every state university in any state where this broadcast is being heard. You unsaved evolutionists, socialists, and communists who are teaching those bunch of suckers all that stuff and tell them they have to have an open mind and get rid of their preconceived standards in order to listen to your garbage, you have no rational explanation for breeding experiments, integration, ephemeral marks, erratic boulders, polystrate fossils, missing links, ociferous fissures, mastodons, orogenesis, Noah's Ark, fish fossils and mountains, poor caps, survival of the fit, the extinct of the fittest, and you can't apply the datum on physics on half-lives to that stuff you believe because you believe a lie. You're about as scientific as a three-year-old hot and cock discoursing on hieroglyphics of Babylonian cuneiform. Finally, we accept the Genesis account of Revelation as given in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 as the right rule for life and the exact scientific empirical objective data on the matter because we've not only observed that unconverted scholarship is crooked, but converted scholarship is crooked. All revivers of Bibles since 1800 ignore history. You won't find any discussion of the history of the Alexandrian text in the preface of any translator who used it as a basis for that text. But if you discover if you go to a Christian college, you'll be misled just as bad as at an unsaved university when it comes to historical fact. There has not been one revision committee since 1800 that ever told you the truth about the history of the text they translated from, the Alexandrian Vatican text of Egypt. Converted scholarship refuses to follow their grammatical rules in translating. They invent rules to justify a violation of rules. They insist on a mythological LXX with no evidence of any kind. They refuse to examine the fruit of the preaching and teaching of the AV. They continue to lie about early and late manuscripts. They continue to lie about the original Greek or the Greek text. They continue to lie about King James and Erasmus. They apply reliable on the basis of finding the fundamentals. They refuse to translate their own manuscripts. They continue to lie about the scholarship of Westcott and Horton Nessels and the converted scholars in the major fundamental Christian colleges and universities in America have an irrational bias against liberals who use the same Greek text and material that they themselves use, and that can be proven court. If you don't believe it, try it on me any time you get ready. As Bernard Ram, the neo-orthodox, said in Protestant Biblical Interpretation, W.A. Wild Company, Boston, 1950, quote, liberals set up as the final canon of truth their own reason. Quote, whatever in the Bible does not measure up to their taste or opinions may be rejected at the word of God. Quote, liberalism rejects an infallible Bible. Quote, the literal interpretation of a Bible passage, if it conflicts with science, the Bible is wrong at this point. When Bernard Ram set up those standards for what he calls a liberal theologian, he nailed the coffin shut on every fundamental, born-again, say, premillennial, independent, soul-winning, good, godly, dedicated, sincere, serious, conscientious, recognized fundamentalist in America 
who was over the King James Bible. For every translator of the ASB and the new ASB set up as the final canon of truth his own reason. He rejected anything that didn't measure up to his own taste or opinion. He did not believe the King James Bible was infallible, and when the Bible passed as completed what they found in archaeology or science, they changed the passage. That can be proved in court. With the documented evidence in black and white. I have in my office 240 slides documenting that evidence from the letters, pamphlets, and circulars and books of these men, plus 15 hours of lecture quoting the documented material. Therefore, we accept the King James text of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to be the only scientific uh, account given of the origin of the universe and the creation of man, and it is the infallible authority never disproven by any man living or dead of any degree of profession of any faith whatsoever, saved or lost. We accept it as it stands. On our next broadcast, we'll go into a detailed study of the great Disneyland world of evolution, that great hypothetical hallucination of the deluded, primitive, pagan imagination. Until then, may the Lord bless you and good day.